0: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Goldbeard.
1: Welcome once again to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr, and we're the only podcast that makes sure to give Niebuhr an extra salute on his birthday. I'm your host, Cliff Bailey. He's your host, Zach Narrison. He's your other host, Aaron Duncan. Today is a festive day my friends on the love thy neighbor podcast now by the time this episode drops it won't be as festive but as of today the day of this recording it is june 21st reinhold niebuhr's birthday he would have been 130 years old today so do you guys want to sing
0: no (laughs) I think we should read some quotes.
1: <clears throat> okay. So, yes, let's read some quotes. So, on the Twitter machine, the Love Thy Niebuhr account posted a tweet asking people to show their love, show their appreciation for Niebuhr by posting their favorite Niebuhr quotes. And we got a lot of good ones. We got some great feedback. So, thank you, everybody who, who posted something. So, uh, yeah, let's give some shout outs to some of our followers who posted and, and shared on the on the tweet, you know, uh, their quotes and um, let's give them a shout out and let's read some of their tweets. So let's do one apiece in honor of Reini's birthday. So what do you got, Aaron?
2: I've got um, Eli Valentin um, here with a quote from uh, Children of Light and Children of Darkness. And it goes man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. Mm. Thank you for tuning in, Eli.
1: Yeah, that's a good one.
2: By the way, I think I, I'm following Eli. He's
1: following me. He's following the he's following love thy neighbor, obviously. By the way, I th- I believe that he's writing a book on Niebuhr's political in- involvement in New York. I think that I saw that. I'm sorry if I got that wrong, but I think that that's going to be dropping this fall. So he'd be a good guy to, a good person to bring on here. And I think he was he, he's at Union now. I think he might've been at Union when I was there, my two years there. I think he was a TA maybe. But anyway, yeah, thank you very much, Eli. Zach, who you got? I got um,
0: Chris Hutchinson and his quote is this. It's from uh, a, an obscure essay he says, called Religion as a Source of Values. And the quote is this, religion is never a good force per se, but merely the final conflict between human self-esteem and divine mercy. And the one is as frequently victorious as the other. Thank you, Chris. I
1: love that. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, Chris is a good follow, by the way, too. Uh, He's PCA pastor, very, uh, uh, very active on the Twitter machine. So thank you very much, Chris. I got one here from Eric Jones. He's a good follow too. Um, he actually brought he busted out uh, beyond tragedy, and gave us a good uh, a good paragraph. And this is what this is what Eric likes. The Christian religion, in its profoundest terms, is a faith in the meaningfulness of existence, which is able to defy the chaos of any moment because the basis of its trust is not in any of the constructs of human genius or any of the achievements of human diligence, which arise periodically to imposing heights and tempt men to put their trust in their own virtues and abilities. Christianity believes in a God who created the world and will redeem it, but it knows that the purpose of God may be momentarily and periodically frustrated by human wickedness. Amen and amen. Thank you very much, Eric. Great quote. So, okay, good. So uh, thank you again, everybody, for commenting. Uh, We appreciate the follows. We appreciate the quotes. And we appreciate you all celebrating with us on this very exciting and festive day that is, we're calling Niebuhr Day from now on. But now let's get into the subject matter for today. And it's appropriate subject matter for his birthday we just so happen to be going over the final chapter of Jeremy Sabella's biography on Niebuhr and American Conscience. It's been a fantastic book so far, um, and this is the end of it, so it's been a fantastic book. But this chapter deals with his legacy. So we're going to be talking about Niebuhr's legacy on his birthday. Couldn't have lined it any better than that. The chapter is called uh, Niebuhr and the 21st Century Conscience. And in a twist of beautiful irony, like Niebuhr would have loved it, The chapter begins with his funeral. So we're observing Niebuhr's birthday by beginning our chat about his death day. So I'm sorry, that was really dark. So uh, what what did you guys take from this little section,
2: Aaron? What what did you take from this? Well, I think the surprise that the chapter starts off with is, is who Niebuhr asked to perform his eulogy. Which is none other than the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, and the sorts of social implications and theological implications of this are quite weighty. So maybe we could discuss that. Yeah, what would you think about it, Zach? Social
1: implications and theological implications and all those things. Well, I mean, it's like classic Niebuhr.
0: I mean, to, to do that to to it just. I think Sibella really highlights really well how much of a surprise it would have been to have a Christian minister receiving a eulogy from uh, like a like a prominent Jewish theologian. Um, yeah, and but I think there's something really compelling about so compelling about having somebody who is you know a total a, a different faith tradition, right? And there's some obviously some overlap, but a, but a, you know still a very different faith tradition um, who you know, calls Niebuhr a righteous man. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. I think it, it, more than anything for me, when I read that, I, I realized just how much of like his presence being around him or being, you know, influenced by him, must he must've been a pretty impactful person, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to have, you know, somebody from another faith tradition being like, Hey, like, look, this guy was, he's the real deal. He's like, you know, he uses the, the saying, like, he was like a, you know, an old Testament prophet you know, coming onto the scene, you know, losing him is like losing, you know, one of these Old Testament prophets. And it's like, wow, he must have, you know, because I've read a lot of his books. It's just a matter of, I, I,
1: that still is kind of like, whoa, you know, he must have yeah, been. Yeah, let's put Niebuhr in, in context in history for a second. Niebuhr was praised by New York, or not New York Times, by Time Magazine as being the greatest American theologian since Jonathan Edwards. This guy is a giant of his time. He's on the cover of magazines. I mean, dude's freaking huge. And this Christian ethicist, this Christian theologian, he has a Jewish rabbi eulogize him. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to th- I'm trying to think of like a a an analogy for today. I guess it would be kind of like if Tim Keller, bless his heart, um, if he were to pass or something like that, um, it would like Having, you know, uh, a, a, a Jewish rabbi or, or, or Muslim imam or something like that uh, eulogize him. I mean, it would be scandalous.
2: Yeah. I, I think even the, the points really well made, uh, what Sabella brings in Susanna Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel's daughter. Um, and he's, he quotes Susanna saying, um, asking my father in itself is something of great historical moment." think about that. In 2,000 years, the Christian theologians ask a Jew to deliver the eulogy? For the greatest Christian theologian of America of the 20th century, a Jew gives the eulogy. But then, I mean, he brings in the contrast a bit more, right, uh, with Spella. Just a few, just the, the line below it, that by asking Abraham Joshua Heschel to deliver his eulogy, he's making a pretty astute theological point here, uh, is that uh, Christians and Jews share um, a common theological conviction and they can equally understand each other. Um, and so that, you know, it kind of shows his sort of democratic impulses, right, on the one yeah. hand, that he he's willing to engage in conversation with just about anybody. And later on in the chapter, we, we also see this with even atheists where he, where he goes on to say, it's one of my favorite quotes. He says that my personal attitude towards atheists is the same attitude that I have toward Christians yeah. and would be governed by very orthodox texts by their fruits, shall you know them? Yeah. What I thought was amazing. And again, a very democratically, a very democratic impulse running to Niebuhr's uh, veins there.
1: Yeah. And we're going to revisit that quote here in a second. It was on the Mike Wallace show. It's a great, it's a great, great quote yeah, about yeah. knowing them by their fruits. Um, yeah. I, I, I love the, uh, the kind of death pact they had too. So um, Ursula talks about this in her eulogy that they, used to walk, like after Niebuhr's stroke, he lived right down the street from, from Heschel and Jewish, Semina- uh, Jewish Theological Seminary of America is right across the street from Union. And I think the Union and, and Jewish Theological Seminary are affiliated now. Um, so, you know, I remember when I went there, we could go over there and use their library and stuff like that. So they already kind of ha- have this, this, this bond going up there, but Niebuhr and, and Heschel used to go on long walks together and they would stop and uh, stop on their walks whenever they would say something to each other. And they would just stand there and talk to each other. Then they'd start walking again. And then they'd stop and they'd start talking together. Now, everything we know about at least Niebuhr, um, this is a pretty talkative fellow. So I don't know how much walking they actually got <laughs> done. But they're, they had this kind of death pact between them that whoever goes first, the, the one would eulogize the other. So I love that.
2: Okay. We'd read out the eulogy itself because it is really powerful.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and read that. So it says, this is from Rabbi Heschel. He says, for many of us, the world will be darker without you. Reinhold Niebuhr, your spirituality combined heaven and earth, as it were. Your life was an example of one who did justly, loved mercy, and walked humbly with his God. An example of unity of worship and living. You reminded us that evil will be conquered by the one. While you stirred us to help conquer evils one by one, his legacy is rich, precious, vital, purity of heart, disgust with intellectual falsehood, with spiritual sham, whether in the Congress or in our own sanctuaries. How shall we thank you, Reinhold Niebuhr, for the light you have brought into our lives, for the strength you have given to our faith, for the wisdom you have imparted in our minds? He appeared among us like a sublime figure out of the Hebrew Bible, intent on intensifying responsibility. He was impatient of excuse, contemptuous of pretense and self-pity. Niebuhr's life was a song in the form of deeds, a song that will go on forever. Ooh, goosebumps. Well,
0: it's interesting too, because I think it, I don't know. I don't know precisely what Niebuhr was trying to accomplish by doing this. I mean, I have my speculations, but part of what it, it shows is how powerfully influential he was. Like he, he was influencing people, his ability to like clarify reality and actually like speak the truth in a way that was like really compelling to people. It, it was like, they couldn't help, but say like, this guy is on the right track, regardless of whether or not they were on the same religious foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, Heschel's still saying like, look, this guy clearly, on the right track like he's clearly a righteous man i think that's pretty compelling um
1: and let's not forget the i mean niebuhr's got nothing to lose he's dead (laughs) right uh so to a certain degree heschel made the stronger sacrifice yes he i mean how much more scandalous could it be to be a jewish rabbi and to eulogize a christian
2: yeah and i mean and to add such rich vocabulary and description He compared him with... to a Hebrew prophet. you know? exactly. Now that, that, that seems quite uh, out of the ortho, out of the orthodox, yeah, um, tra- pathway. It's beautiful.
1: So now we move into uh, how we can find Niebuhr um, living among us um, beyond his his funeral. Yeah, once he is once he has passed and gone. How do we see him today? And uh, Sabella presents to us two case studies: one, uh, Jimmy Carter, and one, David Brooks. And Jimmy Carter, obviously, the president of the United States um, before uh, before Reagan, uh, and then uh, and then David Brooks, who is uh, New York Times uh, columnist.
2: Um, so, what what did you guys take from this section? Maybe we should restate one of the questions that that um, Sabella asks. Sure. As as a foregoing for going into these two figures, I mean, he asks to the extent that is possible, how is Niebuhr actually relevant? Um, is or is he just kind of trapped in it's uh, a particular context? Yeah. Does he only speak to the context, or how do we actually make sense of him today? Which these two figures will actually kind of give us a, a case study for that, right? And so. and this,
1: in a way, is is kind of combating a common critique that a lot of times does come from Harawas that Niebuhr is nothing more than a, a historical theologian like he's someone he's someone we should read for the sake of history but he's no longer relevant so <laughs> uh so yeah, yeah so how is how is he relevant how do we see his relevance um and Jimmy Carter let's start there uh how does Jimmy Carter talk about him
0: well I, I was just say about Jimmy Carter I think it's really interesting how Niebuhr seems to come to people. Like Jimmy Carter gives a great example here when, he's, when he talks about Niebuhr and how Niebuhr came to influence him, right? He's a, he's a submarine officer, um, you know, dedicated to defending his country. He says he's a pretty idealistic person, um, <clears throat> but yet he's at the same time, a dedicated, like a, a committed Christian, right? And he's trying to fulfill the teachings of Jesus Christ, right? And he recognizes, he even quotes him here as saying, you know, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And I wonder how many people that are in Carter's same shoes, where they're dedicated to combat or they're dedicated to, you know, some sort of violence, right? Where, they ha- where they're have, where they put in a situation if where they're they have- a
1: police officer. Yeah. yeah,
0: where they're put in a situation where they have to make life and death decisions or they have to make violent decisions. You know, a lot of like government, you know, like government defending agencies, you could say. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many of them have found like some solace or some, some help in Niebuhr. You know, it seems like for Carter, this is kind of like a Niebuhr was kind of like a, a voice. There was like not a clear voice for him about what to do with this. But he found, I don't know, he found something in Niebuhr, right? He found that he found the ability to kind of work through these tensions.
1: And there's something that would follow him as he went into office. He said that, I quote, uh, uh, Carter said, I quoted him quite often. And one of the quotes I remember, the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. And he continues, and I faced a sinful world, and a challenging world, but I wanted to do the best I could as a politician to establish justice in that world, that was beyond my control. I love that imagery because mm. it's um, it's it's a biblical imagery of the, the 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 sinful world being beyond our grasp. We we cannot conquer it, um, but we still have to try to manage it within kind of our own. Small stations in life, and it just so happened Jimmy Carter had a rather large station in life as president, um, Mm -hmm. but he still had to remember this is a sinful world that he cannot completely overcome with goodness. um, That had to be met with a with a realistic perspective on what he could accomplish.
2: I think the one thing that really threw me off was that he was a Democrat and a Southern Baptist.
1: Yeah,
2: dude. Until we get to
1: Reagan and the. The moral majority, um, d- you know, Christians were evangelicalism was was pretty uh, spread between the, the two parties. And yeah, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical, you know. Yeah. And, in fact, I a good personal friend of mine um, said that he voted Carter. Um, and then voted Reagan. I mean, he, so and it was it was that easy of a switch for him. Um, and he was a evangelical Christian back then. So. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's weird to see that kind of thing today, to look back and, and see an evangelical. Um, not so weird, I think, in the black community, but uh, but certainly in uh, among white evangelicals, they very rarely jump that uh, that gulf between the two parties.
2: I mean, it just goes to show the different landscape we're looking out onto today in terms of religion in America, which I guess we'll cover here in a minute. But mm-hmm. just to, just to fall, flow back on your earlier point, yeah, I, I really do think the the imagery of, you know, when, when uh, Carter says, um, to establish a justice in that world that was beyond my control, I mean, you obviously don't hear that anymore. Between you know, the, the idealisms of of American presidents and campaign slogans, yeah. um, you know, in if you ever go on to like the whitehouse.gov and read the bio for the 39th president, um, it, it shows that, you know, he was quite successful in some areas, but he was bereft with a lot of, um, I think inflation and other sort of things. And I, I'm not sure if he's cast as, a successful president yeah and so i guess you you begin to wonder almost whether or not neighbor's sort of stance actually prov- provides the the sort of um recipe for success in politics yeah um you know i'm not entirely sure so i mean i, I guess
1: i'll tell you one thing that seemed kind of Niebuhrian, um but i don't know like jimmy carter kind of some people would say that he made some bad political moves because of his conscience in a lot of ways. Uh, like one, one time, he, it was like prime time he cuts in and speaks to the world over you know television screens and start talking about how con- uh, consumption is going to lead to our own destruction. Or he, I don't think he put it in those words, but he took the time to address the American public about the harm of consumerism. Like how often do you see a president do that you know but uh, really a will. lot of people thought it was politically a nightmare like you know i can't believe you would you would speak
2: against consumerism like that but he did it i mean among that and was he was also the president presiding over the uh, the detention of americans in iran correct yes so yeah, yeah i mean he was bereft with a lot of you know, things outside of his control as well. And he goes on
0: to talk about David Brooks. And I think it's David Brooks, right? That gives the the criticism of, you know, the one criticism that he has is that Niebuhr is too um, self-critical. Is it David Brooks that says that? I'm pretty sure that.
1: Yeah, know, but that's a little bit later that we get into his legacy type of stuff. Well, uh, I guess
0: the reason I brought it up though, is that maybe that's part of what was, you know, maybe that was a little bit, might've been a negative uh, out for Jimmy Carter.
1: Yeah, you know, kind of the self-critical, too self-critical.
0: Yeah, and you know, in a place of leadership, yeah. you have to be kind of decisive, you know what I mean? And yeah. some of Niebuhr's approach makes you, if you know, if you're going to criticize anything, it's kind of hard to be decisive when you're uh, following a Niebuhrian way of thinking because...
1: It depends on how you think of it. And maybe we should save this conversation for when we get to it a little bit later on, because this will be a, a big part of critiquing his legacy that Sabel's going to take us through here in a second. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I a big reason that Niebuhr was writing was to do just that, to make people in power second-guess themselves. But the adverse effect of that is when you get somebody in there that's already kind of like overly self-aware, like very conscious, and that could lead them to kind of being indecisive, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but we'll get into that here in a second. So David Brooks, uh, I love the story of how he first encountered Niebuhr is he was on some uh, kind of international um, mission uh, or you know story? He was, um, which is basically the close of the Cold War. Take it, take us down that that road, Aaron.
2: Yeah. Uh, so David Brooks was a Wall Street Journal correspondent, and he describes his own sort of the the, the sort of aroma of the day amongst. Politicians and journalists that the coming of the close of the Cold War meant that we would all we would we are ushering into a new age of prosperity. Um, I think the the word he uses is the reign of peace. That peace would reign in the world, yeah. and there was this sort of. But he was also quite taken aback by that, and and didn't really believe that. And then he got his hands on Niebuhr, which provided him the sort of justification. For, for his sort of uh, doubts and those idealisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he brings in this thing that, you know, the, 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 the Wall Street Journal, his whole job is just kind of describe it's, it's he sees it as just describing the world as it is. And that's what most journalists do with their job. But what Niebuhr is doing is a new thing um, for, for, for Brooks, that is, is that he's bringing ethics to politics that he's providing a, a moral analysis of what is going on yeah. and what can be done, which was something different from his, what his description is for, right?
1: Yeah. And he served, Niebuhr served as kind of a prophetic witness um, at the, at this stage where everybody was optimistic and we kind of had this warning coming out of uh, Niebuhr's mouth long beyond his grave and um, I'll read the quote, and here was Niebuhr, Brooks says, and here was Niebuhr, saying, you know, the nature of man is such that we can't expect an end to conflict, we can't expect an end to egotism and to pride, and some of these illusions that we can create a peaceful, unified Europe are nice illusions, but it may not work out that way.
0: Yeah, and boy, that's, uh... here we are again. Cold War <laughs> you know.
2: I mean, I, 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 obviously, I honestly think this provides a great criticism for the way people obviously view reality from their perspective. But it does provide a great postmodern sort of um, left sort of uh, comment that what what David Brooks and these other people are doing when they're talking about the world is they're just interpreting it they're not describing it as it is they're providing an interpretation of from their idealisms and their ideology. stuff so and they're the
1: product of these very large modernistic uh, narratives of world peace you know progress this type of stuff and so i i do think the the postmodern moniker might be apropos because it's because it's it's kind of calling foul on our own pretensions and our own illusions about this kind of Tower of Babel that we're building, that we're somehow getting closer to the heavens.
0: Well, and I wonder if for for Brooks here, where he highlights this, this it's one of the probably preeminent qualities of Niebuhr is that even, even in a time of great optimism, he's not, he's realistic about what's really going on. And, you know, I sort of wonder if that optimism is not equally as dangerous as pessimism, but I, I sort of wonder if it, it there's a danger to it. I wonder if kind of our current global situation has to do with too much optimism. You know what oh, I mean?
1: 100%. Like, I think that, I think Niebuhr would say that our optimism is just as yeah uh, dangerous wonder, as our pessimism. You
0: know, and clearly I wouldn't say that the current situation with Russia is, you know, anybody else's fault other than them because they're the ones that, decided to pull the trigger and start a war in Ukraine. But I, I sort of wonder, you know, as we're just kind of thinking about it, this is if we could have prepared better for that. You know I mean? If we, we, if we weren't caught up in sort of these ideas of globalism and like, like I am mean, not that globalism is a bad thing, just the, the optimism that could accompany it, that we will be one united global, uh, instead of recognizing, hey, this whole time Russia has been hostile towards everybody You know, I mean, it's been pretty obvious that they were maybe not obvious that they were going to invade, but they annexed Crimea like, you know, eight years ago or something like that. No. Yeah. Eight years ago. And it's like all of a sudden we're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they would invade Ukraine. It's like, well, they already did like eight years ago. I wonder sometimes if our, our desire to see kind of a, you know, like what David Brooks is getting at. Just this idea of seeing the world in this rosy kind of end of history color really blinds us to kind of some of the more sinister movements in the world. Um, well, I
2: think your question that gets to the heart of the goal of what Sabell doing with this chapter, insofar as the question is, is Niebuhr relevant? And in that question is implied, well, have things changed beyond Niebuhr's circumstances that he can speak to? And, you know, if, if, if the optimism is still there, which it very much is, um, and our abilities to create, Via technology or by our own means, uh, this grand state, then nothing really has changed in human nature, though our material and political circumstances might may have.
1: I think it's interesting that kind of the first people to start start us down the path of kind of war wars in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan um, fashion themselves as neighborians they were kind of the first ones to take hold of the fact that the end of the cold war, isn't the end of tragedy. Um, that all of a sudden we find ourselves in the nineties with all the optimism in the world because of the end of the cold war. But a lot of the, you know, the, the Cheney's of the world and Wolfowitzes of the world who are very Niburian are going to be the quickest to then jump on the train that the, you know, the sky is falling again, you know, because of 9-11 um it's it's an interesting uh, trap that we can find ourselves in when we kind of rush back and forth between the prosperity of, of a, what we see as a golden period and the total collapse of it you know um we can very easily jump from one to the other okay so let's move on to his his legacy i believe there are five points here that sabella brings out
2: yeah well i think there's really three but there's two subsequent points in under society yeah so they it goes politics society and religion but under society you have race and gender as well
1: yes that's right race and gender yeah 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 you're right okay good all right so uh, so let's let's jump on Niebuhr's legacy when it comes to politics um anything strike you here not now we do get into brooks criticism of Niebuhr as kind of the man he calls yeah. him a man on a gray horse and that his uneasy conscience kind of yeah. can contend to paralyze people Um, it can have the spiraling effect where Niebuhr quote unquote folds back in on himself too preoccupied with the effects of sin for his vision of human potential uh, for good to come through. What do you guys thoughts on this?
0: I think that I understand what he's talking about, that some sort of idealism amongst leadership can be very beneficial at certain junctures in history. But I think that I would prefer personally a self-critical leader to a idealistic leader, and that's just a preference of mine. I can't, you know, give you all the philosophical reasons for that, but I think sometimes that that idealism, that kind of uh, not cult, but that almost cult approach, really is the way you could put it, is um, it can really run amok pretty quickly. And I think that it's really ha- it's, it's much harder for a self-critical leader to run amok. I mean, I think they can make bad decisions by second-guessing themselves, but it's a lot better than you know creating a nationalist movement that lives on beyond you or, or, or creating some sort of crazy movement. You know, it, it, it's hard to create a crazy following when you have, when you're so self-critical, I guess.
1: That's a good point. I, I think that, um, I think I would, I would rather a leader be guilty of the sins of self-awareness than the sins of pride. Yeah. You know, I agree. Um, one case study, And man, we could criticize this guy till we're blue in the face. But uh, James Comey. James Comey on his desk at the FBI kept the file that the FBI had on Martin Luther King and Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay? I believe, I I think this is, I I believe this is what he said in interviews. That he kept either pages from this or like, I don't think the whole file, because Niebuhr's file was like 600 pages. I'm sure the MLK's was... You know, volumes and volumes, but uh, but he kept these things within arm's reach as a reminder of how he can abuse his power and how he shouldn't abuse his power. And search for this white whale that pride sometimes leads us to. But along with Comey's, you know, kind of over self consciousness, over self awareness, you get a unique new crop of issues that you might find where somebody is overly cautious. Like the, the main like bad things that he did, like during, you know, when we're about to go and elect, you know, Trump or Hillary in 2016, he wants to be on the safe side. And he wants, you know, all ha- you know, he he wants everything exposed. He, he wants everybody to see that he's this transparent FBI guy that's above board. Uh, and so he comes out and says, yeah, we had an open, open investigation on Hillary Clinton. We had to reopen it because so, some of these emails came in. And then he tried to explain it all, thinking that if he appealed to the conscience of the American public, that they would understand. And, you know, and he totally misfired on that. But it was a misfire trying to kind of raise awareness about something and not overstep his hand when he humorously, ironically, did overstep his hand by just doing that.
0: Yeah, that's a great example though of, but I, I think that, you know, the key is not to think in terms of like ideal situations, because I think that there isn't an ideal way to, because I think you can, you can really have two ty- you know, both types of leaders, you know what I mean? But um, if I had to choose between the two, I definitely choose the self critical, even the overly self critical, yeah. the James Comeys, you know, they, they, uh, I would sleep better at night knowing that he was in charge of the FBI and not Donald Trump, you know what I mean?
1: But I think that if we had Jeremy Savella in here, he would come back and say, "No, what? But what made Niebuhr Niebuhr was his courage, though. So, like, if, if we're tr- really trying to be like Niebuhr, we would run this dialectic and we would be self-conscious. But at the end of the day, we would take a step, you know, and we would do something courageous. Um, so I I understand Brooks's uh, critique here of the man on the gray horse." And his, you know, you can kind of get into that mode where it's paralysis by analysis and that type of thing, and you lack the courage. But, but I think that if, if you're really running Niebuhr through, you will find that courage at, at important moments.
0: What's ironic, I think, most ironic about the criticism really is that I find Niebuhr to be the exact opposite in some ways. And I, I, coming from a, you know, more conservative, you know, Protestant background, I was taught, you know, in seminary and Bible school, like, you know, stay out of politics, just focus on, you know, uh, basically personal piety, you know, make sure that people aren't sitting in their personal lives, yada, yada. And Niebuhr struck me out of kind of the blue as all of a sudden, like, Hey, wake up. There's whole systems that are corrupted by sin. And You're you need, needed out here. Yeah. You need to do something about this. You need to say something about it. And so it's ironic because I find Niebuhr as a perpetual challenge to me, every time I read him, I'm pondering, man, how, how can I be more like this guy in terms of how can I be more, you know, one of the things Abraham Heschel highlighted was that he was a doer of good works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it made me start wondering what, what, what was he doing? You know what I mean? What were the good works, you know, then, and, and I, I could obviously think of some just from, you know, reading this book and a couple of other Niebuhr's writings, but at the same time, I mean, for me, it, it's kind of the opposite of what Brooks is saying. Niebuhr is like, I find, I find, in his writings, the grace to be able to actually make decisions, even though I know that I'm going to screw up, I'm not going to make the right decision. You know what I mean? I I find that kind of a call to say, Hey, you got to get out there. You know, holding back is not an option. You know what I mean? Sitting on the sideline is not the Christian thing to do.
2: Yeah.
1: Now let's move on to society, his, his legacy in society. Uh, Aaron, do you have anything to say about this?
2: Yes. So um, in terms of neighbors effect on society or his engagement with society. Isabella brings up this point between this division between theology and politics, which she kind of dealt with in the previous section on politics, but it starts off with a quote from Bonhoeffer, um, who, if we, if we remember, was a student at Union Theological Seminary and then would later on go as a pacifist, to engage in a plot to kill Hitler, right? Mm. But Bonhoeffer engages Niebuhr with quite a a, a stressing question. Is union a school of theology or a school of politics, (laughs) according to Marsh? Um, But Sabella's like, you know what, I think Marsh might say this, but, you know, to that divide, Niebuhr did not think that existed. To be engaged in the... The stench of today, all the issues of that day, meant you needed to have new sources of meaning, the kind of way that people have been doing it up until now, with the sort of idealistic notions, romantic notions of humanity, those sorts of analysis, anything Marxism could provide, anything that capitalism could provide, would never get you beyond your own self-delusions. So we needed something different. but even then there were Christians uh, social gospelers who are also really engaged in self-delusion that love mm-hmm. could be an effective political tool that could he- heal our situation, make it less funky. To quote West. That's right.
1: Yeah. to make it less funky, but ultimately Niebuhr finds uh, his love language, if you will, in yeah. the form of justice. And uh, I mean, to quote, Cornel West. I'm sure he gets this from Niebuhr, but uh, that I think he says something like "justice is love," said out loud, or "or justice is Just- love in the public, like in public, as tenderness
2: is what love looks like in private." Say that fully again, one more time. Justice is what loves. Justice is what love looks like in public. That's as a- tender is what love looks like in private. Interesting, I love that. Yeah and
1: so we we get a lot here uh, of Niebuhr talking about what love actually looks like when it when it is uh, kind of filtered through this uh, through these relative systems. Um, and that he talks about how justice is ultimately kind of an instrument for love. Um, and uh, justice for Niebuhr is the mechanism I, this is quoting Sabella, justice for Niebuhr is the mechanism through which love manifests in a sinful world justice is quote something less than love yet it cannot exist without love and remain justice so there's there's this kind of uh, symbiotic relationship between justice and love where they need each other in order to exist and yeah. kind of both here and the not yet and i i i, I love personally i'm i'm a big kingdom theologian i i love uh, looking at kingdom in the New Testament and seeing the way that Jesus uses it. And I love that this ultimately finds its expression in Niebuhr's understanding of kingdom. Um, and I'm just, I'm just going to read this, this one small section uh, where Niebuhr talks about kingdom. He says, uh, Sabella says, Niebuhr moves from a more abstract treatment of love and justice to a comprehensive ethical vision through the biblical concept of the kingdom of God. For Niebuhr, the kingdom of God is the state of perfect harmony among human beings. As such, it is an quote impossible possibility. Although we never, although we will never succeed in building the kingdom in this life, we must strive for it nonetheless, because we know that it is real. And in our striving, we manage to catch glimpses of the kingdom in human life in the form of what Cahill calls, quote, this the social presence of grace. A vision of the kingdom is key if not to achieving then at least to quote approximating the kingdom of God here on earth as Andrew Fenstwin puts it. That's the gospel right there. If you're Mm -hmm. asking me, that's the gospel. Beautifully put.
2: Can can we just say a note a bit more about this love perfectionism as well, that Niebuhr. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's an important point and we've dealt with it before in a few podcasts. But the, the, the point that Sabella brings out from Niebuhr's work is that pure sacrificial love will always get you crucified on the cross somewhere, right? But even in our own relationships between, you know, me, you, and Zach, our love is very compromised. So if we're thinking about society as just a conglomerate of parts, namely individuals, if every individual's love is compromised at a certain level, how can you build a society on that love? Yeah, you can't get there because there's always elements in that. But this brings into the, the next issue, right? That Sabella, the subsequent points that Sabella brings out between race and gender, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: It's love is a compromising force. You need justice to check it, mm-hmm. but justice needs love as well because it can be abused uh, by any authoritarian regime in its own name justice becomes a very circular um construct at that point
1: yeah i think Niebuhr says uh this is a quote he says um he says goodness armed with power is corrupted but pure love without power is destroyed kind of saying that Mm. you know Mm -hmm. pure love naked and out in the open um does not result in justice it's um, it, it has to be accompanied by some form of power and coercion in order to to achieve any relative good in, in this world. Yeah. So let's turn it over to race. Um,
2: well, I just had like, I was going to ask you, uh, Oh, go in, ahead. In terms of race, what did you guys think? Because, you know, this is the, the issue. I mean, pr- prior to getting to this, this is when neighbor has a stroke mm-hmm. and sabella has made this point maybe two or three times in the book that he's not going on his walks with abraham joshua heschel he's not not yeah intimately engaged by being in being in the same room we're just going to say being in the same room as these issues he's very distant from it from a bird's eye view he's not personally engaged so his sorts of um alignment with these issues becomes a bit fuzzy. So what do you guys think about Sabella's discussion of this explanation? Where does never fail?
0: Well, I think that actually, uh, I love how Sabella does it because he doesn't really, he doesn't really give you a clear, you know, he just gives you the facts and lets you kind of sort it out in some ways. Um, On the one hand, you have, you know, him becoming a kind of a gradualist who doesn't, you know, respond probably as quickly as he should have to certain movements you know at at the same time you know he was committed to race issues in Detroit long before many people were in the 1920s Um, but at the same time on the the other hand you know he he helps charter a school that Rosa Parks attends Um, and you know Martin Luther King apparently was very intimately familiar with nature and destiny of man but at the same time, when they needed him most, he wasn't able to make it because of a stroke. Um, and and some people say that he became like more of a gradualist, right? He didn't want the, the it was too shocking of a change.
1: Um, I think the biggest critique that's in here that let's just read it, man, because uh, I think this is kind of a point where Sabella throws his hands up a little bit, but he, but he does kind of just give the justification for where Niebuhr's head is in that moment. This is the late 50s. In 1957, when white violence against Blacks broke out in the South in the wake of school integration, Martin Luther King approached Niebuhr about adding his name to a petition asking for President Eisenhower to intervene. Biographer Richard Fox notes that Niebuhr refused on the grounds that it would, quote, do more harm than good to pressure Eisenhower in such a public way. It was better to arrange a meeting with him in private, End quote. Quote, and then this is furthering from uh, Sabella. This response has since puzzled Niebuhr's admirers, as well as his critics, especially given the role of his earlier early writings in helping to shape the civil rights movement. So it seems like this is, it's, I, I don't know. I'm not going to justify it. But he clearly is kind of trying to talk down Martin Luther King a little bit from publicly confronting Eisenhower to step in in these schools that were being desegregated in the South.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it. It may seem wonder, you know, if maybe he got a little too strategic in his old age. You know what I mean? Sometimes, you know, the, the prophet just needs to call it out. And even if it's. Well, personal power.
1: Sabella so is quick to mention right after this. It's not that he lost his courage. Because later on, like when he's when he's writing in the '60s, he's you know he goes to town on Nixon and the King's Chapel and the King's Court. He goes to town on Nixon and Billy Graham, uh, and this is in the wake of Martin Luther King getting shot. And maybe it was just desperate times called for desperate measures, and and Niebuhr kind of steeled his courage once again and got back out there and started talking again. But this is, I mean, let's just call it what it is. This is a moment of weakness where Niebuhr could have done something, and he didn't.
0: But it's a weakness with his approach, because I think you you hear exactly what the problem is in some sense, because he immediately offers an alternative, which he thinks will, will which will render the fruit that they're looking for. Um, yeah. But it's really not that, it, it, In you know, in hindsight, it's kind of like, did seriously, like he didn't just sign the petition. You know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, uh, just sign the damn petition, man. Yeah, and- but,
0: but he's like, no, 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 I got a better idea. Like, like, I've thought about this and I've got a better idea.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> Sabella does kind of paint it in a way that Niebuhr had been uh, kind of, he, he had seen the success of kind of the gradualist checks and balances, yeah. um, that approach, and that had kind of shaped his perception of the civil rights movement as, as it garnered national attention in the 1950s. So when we get to 1957, he's, he's like, yeah, let's just keep it in cruise control. Let's not get too brash. Let's just watch it and see and see where it goes you know and uh but yeah. uh, but that ultimately was was history did does, is not judging yeah. that
0: well and i want and i wonder <laughs> you know when you go from being a a prophet of one area to a prophet of a nation kind of a deal like all of a sudden he's getting asked these questions by people and you i just wonder like how, not to make excuses for him but i wonder how much of the situation he fully understood at this point you know I mean I wonder if he understood the gravity like I wonder if he had been to the schools maybe he had but I wonder if he'd been to the schools and seen these little kids getting you know uh shoot away and and not even just shoot away but like aggressively attacked when they tried to integrate yeah. the schools.
2: You know there's one thing that um there's a couple I think things we haven't discussed yet which are important. The one thing I want to bring up is there is a quote in this chapter that I am having a difficult time finding where so Bella is either quoting a scholar who's commenting on Niebuhr or is, comment, is Niebuhr commenting on himself that w- white people in America would not accept integration unless they were forced to do so. Yeah. So Bella is bringing up the part where coercion is necessary and Paul to get something good done, right? So there's kind of this evidence to that. But, but if you guys want to comment, that's fine. But the second point I was going to bring up is – that the, the, the manner in which Niebuhr talks about racism as a personal bias, this is coming from Gary Dorian, a personal bias as egotism of a particular kind writ large. Now, reading that and the subsequent pages from 130 and on, Door, uh, Sabella brings up the fact that you know Niebuhr doesn't see racism as structural terms; that there isn't this sort of engendered inge- bias on a larger scale that affects people of color. Um, and it's I think more he inco- sees it as egotisms
1: in a structural form. He sees pride and sin and these things taking shape in structures. But you're right; th- calling it racism is uh, to Niebuhr it's kind of it's kind of like a particular part of the larger structure.
2: Well, I was just gonna say, cause egotism of a particular kind writ large is egotism functioning at a larger scale in like a government or in a, or in a bigger social group. But racism today, the way we speak of it is more of an unconscious sort of thing, which is kind of antithetical to egotism or personal bias. I guess you probably could say. We speak of personal bias as unconscious things, but I I wonder if Niebuhr is thinking of it as particular as active engagement in these things.
1: I see two things going on here. One is that Niebuhr, I think, as a product of his time, he is seeing race as a personal bias. Um, But that bias, he does see, that kind of egotism of one people over another. I mean, we've seen him write about this in Beyond Tragedy of... And, and in moral man moral society of how one group can marginalize and keep down another group with uh, if given a certain system that's not foreign to him but racism as kind of a m- moral term yes he ble- he sees that as kind of he's not with the times in that way with our times in that way where it's not an unconscious thing but there has to be another movement that happens before we before we can catch Niebuhr up to our times. And that is critical race theory, which is percolating in, uh, I mean, we have critical theory happening concurrently with Niebuhr's life, but it hasn't flowered into kind of our current conception of what critical race theory is, where we have these structures that can maintain an actual type of... Uh, Oppression For, you know, the, the entire lifespan of that system, um, whether consciously or unconsciously. So I think it's, I think that when we get into these discussions about Niebuhr and how much he understood, I think that there's some kind of historic, chronological snobbish, snobbish uh, ism going on here where we can look back kind of from our perch of history and judge the way that he understood racism. But I would argue that all the components are there. I don't think it would take that long for Niebuhr for it to all to click together is what I'm saying. But we do need people to kind of specialize in these areas to to bring him up to it. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to look back on
0: Niebuhr um, from our vantage point. I think you make a good point, Cliff, because it's I mean, we could we could unload on a lot of people probably in in
2: hindsight. Yeah. Good, Aaron, do you have any last comments? Um, yeah, I, I I'd be more interested in having a conversation about this further on. I think this probably deserves an epi- episode in itself. One hundred percent, because this is a bigger issue. Whether we're unfair to neighbor, um, in I think the length the words you use were like looking back at him from our vantage point, you know, but, you know, to be, to be completely honest, he's using a God's eye perspective as well. You know, he has his limitations and he does speak of things in structural terms. So it, it, it wouldn't be too much to ask. I feel from, from my position just now, it could change to speak of racism in those terms as well. I mean, the way Sabella runs his argument is he runs on the fact, and again, he's done it a couple of times, that post-stroke Niebuhr's kind of out, and out of engagement. And that is a, a serious stain um, or deterrence on his ability to think critically and conceptually engage larger social problems. So that might be the big issue here, but, you know, he can watch it on his TV. He, he, he can talk to MLK and, you know, all other civil rights leaders. Yeah, that's so. true. How many
1: theologians get to talk to MLK personally, you know? Yeah. So that's true. So I, I think that there's a lot of blame that Niebuhr can shoulder. Uh, but there, I, I, I am hesitant to just completely level theologians in the mid-century for, uh, for having blind spots when it comes to race.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously, you know, with the genius of Niebuhr, and I think Cornel West brings that lish at the end is, you know, for all his faults, he gives us the basis, I mean, besides Howard Ross, for all of his faults, he gives us the basis to disagree with him. So he has the courage enough to speak up and yeah. to be wrong. So it's necessary.
1: All right, let's move on to gender. So I love this yeah. critique of Niebuhr, by the way. Um, I think this one in here. What's that?
0: Well, I think this is the best critique of Niebuhr that there is. I think that I have not read a better yeah. one than this critique that, or the, the critiques that he highlights here.
1: laid out for it, Zach.
0: Um, well, I'll just go read the quote from uh, Helen Gaston. Um, Niebuhr's emphasis on sinfulness and on the sin of pride in particular is really troubling to feminists because it raises the question about who his intended audience is, it is a wonderful corrective for the powerful. But what about the powerless? What about for people who have trouble even taking, uh, even taking a strong stand, or, or or are hiding their gifts instead of trying to exercise them? And then they go. He goes on a little bit further, and I got to read this other quote by Lisa Cahill. He said, uh, she says, for many women, the sin. Uh, the sin, the basic and underlying sin is not pride. It is the running away from or hiding from the challenge to have an identity and to really make a difference and to have commitments and plans and principles that one courageously pursues and defends, no matter what the obstacles. And I, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's like, man, that, that's it, it's a those are both phenomenal critiques of Niebuhr because he really is all about attacking human pride and the perpetuate, like the perpetual nature of it. And it really about, he's really going, he really goes after the halls of power. Um, and, and he, he, the one thing I will say that he does do that maybe this, this quote doesn't help with, or, or where, where it kind of misses the mark is that he obviously get empowered a lot of people to go after powerful people. So like MLK found, you know, nature and destiny of man to be this thing worth memorizing. You know I mean? Something that would imp- give him power to address the halls of power. Um, a tool, I guess you could say, um, but otherwise, I mean, I, I think they they nail or Sabella really nails Niebuhr here um, in a way that I did, I hadn't thought of before I read this. So
2: but I think we should keep, we can boil all this this the the critique down to a few things. So number one, is pride universal? And the answer I think to 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 this question, Sabella brings out with clarity is yes for feminist scholars critiquing Lieber, they all probably do buy into pride being a universal quality in human nature. But pride is more, as uh, uh, Sabella uh, comments, is more accessible to those who have power. So it's not as if men are just prideful by nature and those who are, you know, weaker or, you know, women or people who are marginalized, don't have power or not prideful. For them, they're on the margins of who can access power to a large degree. So the question for these groups of people is not, you know, to prescribe to them sacrificial love. For for Niebuhr, the answer to pride is self-sacrifice but how can someone give something of themselves if they have nothing to give? So the, the prescriptive to this is you got to love yourself. You got to have a bit of ego. You have to have a bit of pride. If you have nothing. Pride meaning dignity. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what I would say to this is that the critique is absolutely right on in that it's insofar as it's critiquing his emphasis, Okay, his emphasis throughout his career was much like Augustine, it was all about pride. But if you look at Nature and Destiny of Man, his formulation, and this is where I disagree with Sabella here, where Sabella says, one wonders if Niebuhr might've formulated his understanding of sin and grace differently. I, don't, I think he formulated it correctly. Um, there is a place there for the feminist critique, uh, but it's almost always exaggerated when he goes to apply it because he's speaking to power, to power and systems. If you look at Nature and Destiny of Man, the way that he critiques the naturalists and the romantics, that's your feminist critique right there. So setting it up, the beginning of Nature and Destiny of Man, he says that we are a problem unto ourselves and we are not exactly a child of nature, but we're also not transcendent over nature either. We're kind of stuck kind of in between in this really bizarre place. We're images of God, but we're sinful type of thing. So he uses this type of language. The pride is us trying to transcend ourselves too much over nature, and that's what the idealists do, and that's what the rationalists do. They trend, that's their sin, is they, they transcend themselves over nature to the point that they're trying to control it all. The sin of naturalists and the sin of romantics is they evade their responsibility completely, and they become absorbed into nature. And they don't want. They want to go. They think that their salvation lies in undoing the ego and undoing uh, all these problems that we see in modernity, industrialization, of escaping that. That and that is what he calls sensuousness or resignation. So we have two different sins that are coming out of Niebuhr's formulation, his understanding of original sin. We have the 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 type that transcends itself into pride, and we have the type that obscures itself into nature and doesn't want to um, stand on top of, of nature and direct it, but it wants to absorb itself. So I think that the feminist critique there is going to be insensuousness, what Niebuhr calls, or our escape into nature and not wanting to define ourselves as active agents in the world, but trying to escape it. I don't know if that makes sense.
2: No, that makes sense, but I think I think Savella brings it up. I'll just kind of try to work for memory Some of the feminist critiques The the feminists themselves They said you know that um, If if There is a sort of sin Of resigning oneself The kind of language you used Right so I think that's what they're saying Yeah he doesn't work that out From Niebuhr though
1: Like he just says Uh, that that, that's their critique Is that he needs more That is he needs more He needs to deal more with uh, those who are on the margins exerting themselves and maintaining an identity about themselves uh, and a dignity about themselves. He doesn't draw any of this from Niebuhr himself, but I tried to pull it out that it's there like his critique of naturalism and romanticism. I mean, that's spot on. Like what what he goes to is he tries to get these people who are receding from public life to exert themselves and to say and to admit that they do have some role to play in society. Yeah, that's a a really good point.
2: Why do you think that Niebuhr doesn't, I don't don't want to use the word can't, but why doesn't Niebuhr apply this to race and and gender than himself?
1: That's well, that's the question. Yeah, that's why I think it, that uh, he's lacking that emphasis.
2: Absolutely. Well, but if he's in if he's in if it's in nature and destiny of man, you know, if he has the, the baseline for it, why can't he just extract that same thought and just apply it to that? Good point.
1: I don't know, but he does he is neglectful, and that's the feminist critique. Is but it's not, a, it, I don't think it's appropriate to say that he doesn't formulate it because it is there. It's a mistake, yeah. I, I think, but it is right to say that he doesn't emphasize it. He doesn't use that critique, and I think that there's there's a ripe uh, harvest there to use Niebuhr that way because that's a whole side of sin that isn't used. I used it in my dissertation um, when we were talking about technology. I think I think a lot of the critics of of technology, find themselves absorbed in it to technology to the point that they can't speak to it and change it or anything like that. Like the critical mm-hmm. theorists and like naturalists, um, uh, Lewis Mumford, uh, but they they don't find themselves as having any dignity in the technological society, um, and but that's their sin, you know. So yeah, I think there's there's a whole lot that they can do with that um, that hasn't been done. We got to get to religion. So this is uh, this this was my favorite part of the chapter. Yeah everybody's religious you know he argues i love that starting point and i think it's it's maybe a nod to Tillich. Uh, well i think
0: it's also just a nod to like his protestant background that's a common protestant critique that kind of the idea that um we all worship something like that is very much uh, you see that in a lot of different thinkers i wonder uh, when that started though i know that i've read it a lot and, you know, the, the I wonder
1: if this critique, though, started with, with Tillich and Niebuhr and those guys who are thinking about it. because this is the first 20th century, is the first time that we really see this onslaught of atheism, these people who claim that they don't have religion. And, but they're saying, oh, yeah, you do, you know?
0: Yeah. Hmm. What did you like about this uh, this section, Cliff?
1: Well, I like where he starts off. Uh, Aaron already mentioned it, but with a Mike Wallace interview, Niebuhr, um, yeah i'll read it it says uh my personal attitude toward atheists is the same attitude that i have towards christians and would be governed by a very orthodox text by their fruits shall ye know them and then i'll and then this really captures it this this paragraph here by sabella unsurprisingly niebuhr gauged these fruits using the weights and measures of ethics for niebuhr we are all caught up in the same drama of sin and redemption and when the drama concludes, we will be judged by our deeds. What we will be judged by our deeds, which will reveal what we worshipped. Love yeah. that everybody's worshiping something here yeah. in the United States. It's everybody's worshiping something.
0: To too. It's a helpful paradigm to like kind of like see the world, you know, like to see Henry Ford and to see him in religious terms instead of seeing just seeing him as like a secular and trying to like address him from a secular standpoint. Say hey, like there's a religious paradigm to what's going on here, the the following that he has, the 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 adoration that he receives, the mm. the devotion. I mean, just lifelong devotion that people give to this guy. Um, it has a religious element, and it's it's a really it's actually and for me, it's in when, when Niebuhr frames, for instance, Henry Ford that way, is easier for my mind to actually conceptualize what's taking place mm. with Henry Ford and his followers and so on and so forth. Than it is to talk about him in a non-religious sense, in a completely kind of secularized. He's a CEO and yada yada. No, it's like no, he's a leader, a charismatic leader right. who who has a has a following of people who are dedicated to a certain way of life, or and that is imminent that that way is emanating out into the entirety of society. That that adoration and worship is impacting the community, right? It's the way it impacts the way people choose to live their life, how they choose to retire, how they choose to where they choose to live
1: and so on and so forth. And this also injects new life into the whole discussion of separation between church and state, which I think is, is oftentimes more uh, of a source of confusion in the way that we talk about politics and religion than anything. Um, Yes. The institutions should be separate, but you you can't tell me that religion isn't all throughout Capitol Hill. It is, it is an animating feature. And we're not talking about like, you know, Christianity proper. We're talking about people have gods up there, you know, Uh, they're not always a Christian God, uh, but they have gods. And it's important that we understand what those gods are. Sometimes it's the God, uh, you know, Aries, sometimes Aphrodite, sometimes, you know, but they're all serving something. You know, they're all they're they're all they all have some kind of God. And that's true in a communist state, an atheist state like the USSR. There's a God here. What is that God? Let's break this down, because obviously their desires and what they're working toward in history has an, an has an extra dimension that resembles more closely to religion than anything political that they're doing.
2: Yeah, which is why he brings in the next fact that it's not about between godly and the godless. It's about true religion versus false religion. Yes, really makes the previous quote you made you mentioned Quiff, very intelligible. That you know you'll be judged by your deeds, and from that you'll find out what you worship as well. Mm. You know, if you read that just on its own, I think some Protestants might say, "Well, what about justification by faith? What does he mean by this?" Yeah. But you know, when you get to that part where he talks about what is true religion then i think that makes it a bit more intelligible
1: yeah we need we got to get going but we need to I, w- I would love to get into this more fully because he even uh takes another step here where he obscures kind of the systems that we're in he says that there are, there's no such thing as a christian system there's no such thing as a christian economics there's there's no such thing as a christian politic It's not a matter, this is what Levin Levin is saying, and I quote, it's not a matter of choosing one or the other and then deciding it's the Christian system. The Christian attitude towards every system of politics and economics is to ask what kind of justice is it going to produce in this immediate situation and to be prepared to choose the solution that offers us the best approximation of justice.
0: Yeah. I think it's a phenomenal thing. And one of the things that I think they highlight really well here is I think he gives, Niebuhr gives people uh, like, like the quote you just read. is just like such a perfect example of like, that's what Niebuhr is kind of always pushing people towards to, to, to be looking, not not trying to say, okay, here's a system. We're going to bring in our system, our Christian system. And this is what we're going to use This is the paradigm. It's saying, no, 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 we don't do, we don't, we don't have a system. Let's try to choose the one that's the best. But, in, but one thing that he lacks in doing that And I think that this is probably one of the places where I have the hardest time with Niebuhr is this quote here by Hauerwas that, that theologians oftentimes do not give an account of that, which they can presume. And he presumed the vitality of mainstream Protestantism. He himself could not, I mean, he himself could count on the church just being there. And so what they go on to kind of explain is that he doesn't make a connection between like prayer and communion and the practice of confession and christian communities and their ability to advocate for justice and i think that that's a really important problem inside of nieber's theological paradigm it's like what does it mean for a christian community to partake of the lord's supper each week and how should that inform their view of justice in the in the society and i think there's a real connection there but I, i think Niebuhr he's just kind of lacking in the fact that he kind of like left that on the table he just didn't go there
1: he's an ethicist zach I know, but that's
0: that's our problem. That's not his. Well, but I would say that that's one of the weaknesses he has when he addresses the the Bartian school of thought. You know that that kind of more confessional approach. A lot of those people are left asking. You know, I had a guy ask me. I gave him an Eber book. The guy that goes to my church, and he asked me like, "But what about like what about the church?" You know, what I mean, he he we even watched the documentary. You know, and he was like, "Well, what about the church? Like, what is how does the church impact? How does the church make these?" Things? And it was like. You know, Niebuhr doesn't say a whole lot about that. And I think that that makes him kind of.
1: Two things. To- One, I would I would throw that right back in Howard Wass's face because he's sitting there talking about hypotheticals and resident aliens about, well, we would be good if we were more influential. You know, we would be able to save these people in Syria if the church was it. We we once were that powerful, but we're not that powerful. He we could level that same critique at him that he assumes for his theology to work, he assumes there to be a church. And I think that I think that it's a little silly and a little tautological uh, of a statement to say your theology can't work without a church. Of course, like we have to presume uh, the church is functioning and listening to these critiques, you know. Uh, Go ahead, sorry. He doesn't, what all I'm saying is he doesn't,
0: I think they're rightly criticizing him for not making the connection between. Christian disciplines, the disciplines of Christian community and his ethics, like maybe with prayer, you know, and obviously you've read a little bit more Niebuhr than I have, but, you know, like I I see a very strong connection between a church, uh, being able to draw a connection between like the Eucharist, you know, taking the elements and then, you know, commissioning people to go out and to make that a reality in their community, that sacrificial love, that giving of oneself, that giving of one's body. Uh, for others. Um,
1: yeah. I think if there would be a connection, it would be in liturgy. The, yeah. there, there's a way that we can write our liturgy. I mean, the serenity prayer is an excellent example of this. I do this you know, often when I write liturgies in a Niebuhrian frame of mind, you know? So I, I think that it is for pastors to read Niebuhr and then construct their services. I think it's doable, but yeah, you're right. He's, he's not an ecclesiologist. He's not, uh, a theologian people read in the pews much, but that's what we want to change. But uh, but yeah, I, 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 I think that's good critique. I do love what he says about the uh, Noah's Ark and that we kind of have to live on the edge of the abyss a little bit. Uh, if you're on Noah's Ark, uh, is it the storm you're wanting to... So, so you have the storm outside and you have the stench on the inside of the Ark so you're kind of forced to the edge a little bit. He uses that analogy um, of, of living on the edge of, of society and church, you know, and that's, yeah, that's something um, I, I strive to do. Go ahead, Aaron. I
2: was just going to say that I, I completely understand like Howard's point. I understand Zach's point and I understand your point too, Cliff. Um, what I would add, and I, th- I and this is something I've been thinking about since reading I'm um, nearly halfway through Resident Aliens now. Um, give me one more day and i think I'll be done with it. But, you know, the thing with Niebuhr is that, you know, we, we can talk about Christian disciplines and whatnot, but we have a situation where people go to church and still engage in really horrible practices outside the church. And you need a critique of that. So Niebuhr comes into a particular context and setting where he's just he's not only blasting the idealisms of of society but but how the church is infected with those same idealisms so you need that christian disciplines don't extricate themselves from those idealisms themselves they need something to critique the disciplines which is what needs might be more fundamental
1: yeah yeah and just those things yeah that's good i do think it's a it's a bit and we're about to wrap up but i i love the irony here that one of uh, Harawas's main critiques is that he assumes kind of this power this church that's in power but uh and now that that's gone like what is niebuhr um but i love what david Brooks says that niebuhr is a sort of gateway drug to religion yeah. um and that When you read Niebuhr, he draws you into religion like it's kind of a a ready meal of religion already, like when you're when you're reading him. Um, I don't think that you have to presume a church in power to read Niebuhr and to get anything out of Niebuhr. Uh, In fact, I think he would be very helpful for a church on the margins uh, like he was for Martin Luther King. Um, one, I, uh, and he's even called like the bridge Pontifex, uh, Pontifex. You know, he's he's the bridge to society. So, go ahead, Aaron.
2: I was gonna say that I'm really stupid here, and it's, it's nothing even to do with this. But do you know how Alex Jones sells supplements on his like program? Yeah, unfortunately, maybe we should start selling neighbor supplements to get you into religion. And, like, <laughs>
0: Definitely, he definitely is though. I mean, I think David Brooks highlights it well. He's kind of a gateway drug yeah. to religion. He definitely Yeah. I I, I like I, I've said it before, I think he's the best Christian apologist I've ever encountered. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just his ability to engage you with biblical ideas. Yeah, you know, I think even the most secular person would have things to take away. Um I just wish that I could get them to read a little more, Niebuhr.
1: Yeah. I agree, but that's why we're here, man. Um one, just two last comments. Um, one about Niebuhr changing his mind in ways um, that kept his integrity intact. In, in A lot of times when we see politicians change their mind, it's to kind of go with the flow. They see which way the wet, the wind's blowing, and they and they uh, and and they go where it's wherever it's popular. But Niebuhr, you know, stood out on the ledge, you know, um, and uh, even was admits this. I mean, there uh, there's just heaps of praise on him. And it makes me think of a guy like John McCain. John McCain loved Niebuhr. And and it's one of those questions I know Zach sometimes asks, did he love Niebuhr because he was like Niebuhr or did he love Niebuhr because he informed him in some way? Um, but uh, yeah McCain in his book Hard Call he devotes an entire chapter to Niebuhr and it's because his ability to stand up and and to kind of reject pacifism at, at an important time and it reminds me of McCain in his latter days of bucking his own party to do what's very difficult and to be courageous where he was and it makes me wonder about you know Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and some of these people who are these rare Republicans who who are bold enough to stand up against their own party. Um, that's that's very um type of courage. So I appreciate that. Why don't you guys somebody want to lead us out with a with a quote by Cornel West that he leaves us on? Starts on page one forty one. Yeah. I'll do put that. Some, I'm just put kidding.
2: Some, put okay. some oomph into it. Put some oomph into it. Yeah. Okay. Let me find out. Ryan Hold Eber makes me shake and tremble as a human being when I think of the depths of his courage, his vision, his determination, his discipline, his willingness to expose himself publicly and continually grow and mature. That's why I consider him a soulmate. That's why when I think of his name, I think of John Coltrane, Anton Chekhov, or Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. These are special spirits of the species who have the courage to go to the edge of life's abyss, to step out on nothing and land on something.
1: Hmm. And then the concluding sentence from Sabella, concluding sentence of the book is, times may change, but the abyss remains with us. May Niebuhr's voice and example grant us the serenity, courage, and wisdom to step out. Amen. My boy, amen. My I, boy really looked like that. I got to be honest. I ended this book with a big, stupid grin on my face, just smiling yeah. away at how, how he concluded this. Wonderful, wonderful word. All right. So, just a note to our listeners uh, we will be interviewing Dr. Jeremy Sabella one more time next week as kind of a wrap up to his book. Make sure you tune into that. We are greatly looking forward to capping this project off with a good conversation with our friend, Jeremy. That about does it for today. Thanks as always for listening. Please like or subscribe, write us a good review on whatever platform you're using and make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Thanks again, everyone and stay safe out there.